We're into the Christmas season, and we've started a five-week series on the coming of Jesus into this world, not because he actually came on December 25th, but because we're all thinking about this time of year. And it's good just to focus on this amazing event and give it space. And so we're taking five weeks. Last week, I did part one, where I spoke about the prophecies in preparation for Jesus' coming, how the world was amazingly prepared with such extraordinary things, a peace which had went for 200 years, a language that was common, um, uh, uh, an infrastructure of roads that just allowed the gospel to spread. And we saw prophecies from Genesis right through to Malachi about Jesus' coming, and then we ended up by, by concentrating on the most amazing ones in Isaiah, about this one who would come to bring light to the captives, set them free from prison, and mend up the brokenhearted. Well, that was the first one. Today, I want to move uh, forward in the line to the point where Jesus enters the world and to focus on that God should take on a human body and why. And then next week, I plan to put everything together in our Bible accounts, see how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all parallel, how the whole story fits together and just see the big picture. And then the following week, just before Christmas, I want to take the Gospel of John's account. And then Christmas Day, we're going to celebrate. We won't be here in this room on Christmas Day, but we'll be doing it in our home plus online. So my goal for today is to be able to look at your hand and say, Jesus had a hand like this. Can you look at your hand right now? Jesus had a hand just like yours. To honor Jesus and this huge step that he took for us and to understand why he did it and what this means for you and I. And so we're going to start by looking at the the line of Jesus in Matthew and then the historical setting of the world that Jesus was born into and then end on the reason why God took on a human body. So the line of Jesus... Just briefly, um, there was an expectation when he came. There was a promise to Eve he would be someone who would defeat Satan. A promise to Abraham, someone who would be a blessing on the whole earth. Moses was promised a prophet like him. David was promised a king in his line and a priest. So he'd be a prophet, a priest, and a king. Isaiah was told about a suffering servant. And many of the other prophets spoke about what this person was going to be like. Uh, And some said um, he would be um, like this and like that and amazing things about him. But nobody dreamt that he would actually be God himself who would become human. That was a complete shock. And I want to show you some, I want to take us now into the New Testament, the very, very first bit. And I want to show you something that's quite surprising. And I think you're going to be surprised when I show you what's there. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So genealogy is when you trace through somebody's line. So this amazing Jesus Christ 
We're going to trace through the line, at least from Abraham, and see how he fits in. So Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Okay, that's fine so far. And then it says, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Why is Tamar in there? Why is he highlighted? Well, this is, I don't know if you know the story, but uh, Tamar was childless and she believed that God wanted to have a child and she argued with her father Judah and he wouldn't uh, organize a husband for her because that's how it worked in those days and he wouldn't do it. And she, so what she did is she dressed up as a prostitute and she, she seduced her father and through that there was a child born and that was the, in the line of Jesus. And the, the, the account makes it very clear that actually she was the one who was in the right, even though it wasn't the right, right way to do it, and Judah was the one who was in the wrong. She, father-in-law, she was the one that carried the line of Jesus. Why does Matthew put this in? Why has he highlighted that? He could have just, like, he's, this is, he hasn't put the other women in. Why has he put her in there? Well, it was hard for her, but why put this in Jesus' line? Like, isn't this the Holy One who'd been waiting for all this time, you know, and he's got this amazing bloodline, and why put this in here? To value her, to honor her? I think that's part of it. But it's going to say something about Jesus. Anyway, it goes on. It goes on. And someone, the, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Well, Rahab was this amazing woman who risked her life for the sake of the two spies, that she could hide them in Jericho. She was a prostitute, again, but she turned to God, the only one in the entire city of pagans. She turned from paganism to God. She said she believed in God, and that's why she did it. And so she became in the line of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And then and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Well, what's special about Ruth? She wasn't, she was a Gentile. And in this amazing faith, she had, no, I want to follow God. And she moved in to the land of Israel and she married Boaz and she became in the line. Can you see something that's happening here? We're having a very, very messy line here, a very messy line that he's coming from. And not just pure Jews, like a lot of people, like he's more than 50% Gentile already. When you look at the, the, um, uh, the, the way things add up, but it carries on. Jesse, the father of David, and David was the father of Solomon. Which of, David had quite a number of wives. Which wife do you think God chose for the one that Jesus would come through? The one he committed adultery with and then murdered her husband so that hoping people wouldn't find out. That was the one that God chose. And um, that this, this poor woman, Bathsheba, she is the one who's actually brought in to the line of Jesus. And so partly I think he's honoring these women, but partly he's saying Jesus is coming into our messiness. He's coming in not just to be human. He's not coming to some bright, shining humanity. He's coming into the depths of what it really means to be human, to struggle and to, be, um, to have these challenges. And he's, he, he, he's willing to go right into that place where we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what's, no matter what's um, happened in our lives. And uh, so this is 
this is his bloodline. This is his DNA. This is who he is. He's, he's from these people. So this is the beginning of Matthew, and I'm not going to continue with Matthew because I'd like now to talk about the historical setting of the world Jesus was born into. And I'm going to get Anne to come up now. I think that sometimes we get, have this idea that because it was such a long time ago, we can think of it being a myth. It can be like some great story of Jesus coming, and we have these Christmas cards. And I want to take some time to underline that this is history. Jesus came to a real historical world. And so I've asked Anne to talk a little about the historical setting of the world that Jesus was born into. It's exciting, isn't it? Um, I thought before I start showing you the pictures, just have a few points. Where did Jesus grow up? Nazareth, thank you. Someone's been listening to their Sunday school lessons or reading their Bible. Um, Nazareth was a tiny little place. I mean, in those days, it's probably about 200 people, which sounds microscopic to us, but that's a reasonable size village back then. That's like not, you know, that's not the end of the earth. But, you know, we think of it as somewhere really, really, really insignificant. But just because it's not written down anywhere doesn't mean it was really insignificant. It was about three or four miles from a major, major city in Galilee, the city of Sephoris. It's a bit like, you know, if you said, oh, I live in Woodbridge, it's near Toronto. Well, no one outside of this area, I and mean, maybe some of you would have heard of Woodbridge, but we'll all have heard of Toronto. You know, and so Nazareth was like that. It was just this short distance from Sephoris. And so it was, it was, um, it was a very connected place. It was on a very... Uh, thriving, complicated uh, road system. It was a very connected place, even though it was small and we never don't hear much about it. Okay, so also, when Jesus worked with his father and his brothers, what did he do? He was a carpenter. He was a carpenter. Nowadays, if you were a carpenter, what would you do? <laughs> I think roofers do roofing. <laughs> okay, you'd, you'd, you'd build things with wood. Now, but often I think we think of carpenters as doing, like, you know, I had, new, had to have new steps down to my uh, basement. I called a carpenter. We had new front steps built. We called a carpenter. But it was actually carpentry. Back when the Bible was translated into English, carpenter was the right word to use. Because in 1300, 1400, 1500, houses were built of wood. And if you were a carpenter, you built houses. So if Jesus was around today doing the same thing, he would frame your house for you. He's not putting up a shelf in your living room. He was in, Joseph and sons were in construction. Now the city of Sephoris was this major city which Herod and then later the Herod that came after him so this is during the time of Jesus they did major major rebuilding work they made Sephoris into like the jewel of the north this was like this major beautiful city that they built well if there's a little construction company just outside of Sephoris they were probably involved in the work so probably Jesus was involved in actually building this city so that's quite exciting because you can walk around the remains of that city now 
One last thing. Can I share it? No, I've got that. Okay. One very last thing. Um, when Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary laid him in a... What other word do we use? We also used the word, we had it, it was one of the verses of one of the songs, a bit we didn't sing this morning. People talk about, oh, Jesus in his crib. Well, a crib, what's a crib now? What do you put in a crib? Babies. Back when, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, a crib meant a container, largely for putting animal food in. It was the same as a manger. It was for putting animal food in. But it basically was just a container. So it's like, we, we can sort of, people can get the wrong idea in North America. Oh, Jesus was laid in a crib. Well, there were no fancy little cushions around the outside, so he didn't bang his head on the railings, you know? This was a little container full of probably straw, who knows what. But that's, so don't get confused by the word crib. Okay, first picture what are they? Tombs. These are tombs in the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem. I'm showing you because that is exactly not the sort of place where Jesus was buried. Next picture. Now this is, so what I'm going to do is just show you some of the sort of things that would have been around when Jesus was alive throughout his lifetime. So this is a synagogue. You can see it has, I mean, you can't see the walls here because over time all the walls have fallen down or likely people have just taken the stone away and used it to build other things. So you can see the outline of it, but it has these little benches around the side. Synagogue wasn't church. It wasn't like you came once a week to synagogue and you had a service. They were there on the Sabbath. They would read the Torah. There would be gatherings for things. It was used for other gatherings during the week. Sometimes even like it was used as the local courtroom. It was used for a lot of things. It was a gathering place. It wasn't like a mini version of the temple. You didn't come to the synagogue to do your sacrifices. I mean, it was, obviously, it was, it was religious. And when Jesus was there, he was there on the day when they were reading the Torah and he read to them. And then he went and sat down. So, next picture is... Um, now then, synagogues were so important to the Jews that later on, this is slightly after the time of Jesus, they rebelled against the Romans. The Romans came and attacked them. The Jews retreated to this um, fortress on top of a mountain called Masada. And they needed a synagogue, so they turned one of the dining rooms into a synagogue. That's how important it was to the Jews that they had a synagogue. Next picture. And this is a close-up of the end of it. And just to show you, the sort of bench around the side and the steps. So when Jesus had finished you know, reading from the scroll of Isaiah and he, he handed the scroll back and he went and sat down and he taught them, he's sitting on one of these benches. They didn't have like folding chairs like we do. You either sat on the floor or the benches at the side and so he sat down to speak. I imagine he might have sat, might have sat up, a, up a step or two so he could address people, but there you go. Next one. Okay. This is a rock with some writing on it. This is in the town of Caesarea, which you read of a lot in the Bible. People go to Caesarea, they come from Caesarea, things happen in Caesarea. And this is in the amphitheater. You know, amphitheater is like a big, sort of like a, like a stadium, like big curved rows of banked seating. And it says, let's have the slide, unless you can read the Latin. Let's have the slide. Now you can see the Latin. It's basically... It's 
I'll trans read the translation. It's to the divine Augustus Tiberium, da da da. Pontius Pilate, da da da. Prefect of Judea has dedicated this. So, Pilate, when this amphitheater was built, Pilate dedicated it to Tiberius, who was emperor at the time. We read about Pilate. We read about Tiberius in the Gospels. Here's this thing. If Jesus went to Caesarea, if he ever happened to go to this amphitheater, he would have walked past this rock. He would have been able to read that writing. These things are, this is just all real, real, real. Next one. That is, the Jews were very, they had all these um, laws about cleanliness and bathing, and that's just a ritual bath in Sephoris. Next picture. And this is a street in Sephoris. Now, the cobbly bit at the side is actually the street. And this mosaic -y bit is probably a corridor or like the walkway in front of the shops. This was a really, really swanky city. I mean, even by today's standards, there are the bits of Sephoris that are left are really, really fancy. It was a, it was, Herod wasted no money on his reconstruction of Sephoris, but what a fantastic place it was. It was, I said about Joseph and Jesus, could have helped build it. Next one. And this is the amphitheater at Sephoris. You can only see part of it. The whole semicircle exists. And this is like the local theater. I mean, if, um, if Guardians of the Galaxy 3 was on, Jesus wouldn't go because he'd say, no, I'm the Guardian of the Galaxy. But this is where they'd show it. Okay, here's a tomb. This is a very famous tomb. About, oh, where are we now? 20, 30, about 30 years ago, a little bit more, someone said, oh, I found the tomb of Jesus' family. This one here. There's all these um, names written on things inside the tomb about Jesus and Joseph and someone called Miriam or Mary and all these things. And I mean, what are the odds of all those names being together in one place? I found the tomb of the family of Jesus. No. 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 A thousand times. No. Number one, wrong place. Where did Jesus' family live? This is not in Nazareth. Number two, the chances of finding all those names together are like the chances of going to a graveyard here and finding people called Thomas or David or John Smith. I mean, they were really, really, really common names back then. And your chances of finding a tomb that didn't have any of those names are more remote than finding one that had all those names. So that's another problem. And... They weren't rich. You have to have money to have someone to chip a tomb like this for you out of the rocks. So no way. There, was a, there were lots of documentaries at the time, and they named all sorts of famous archaeologists who then later got together and put all their names together and said, they, we were nothing to do with this. They just used our names. So it was like a big hoax. Next one. This is... A heel bone that was found in a tomb around the time of Jesus. You can see it has a nail through it. So how do you imagine this person died? They were crucified. But it was found in a tomb in a family. So this person, 
whoever they were, had been crucified, the body had been removed, had been lovingly, respectfully buried by the family with all due honor. And so we can see that when we have the account of Jesus being taken down from the cross and respectfully buried, he this is something that happened. Like it wasn't just, oh, they made the exception for Jesus. Like these things happened in real life so we can believe that the account of Jesus was right. Um, But obviously, Jesus was resurrected, never got to the point of being bones in a box. Next one. Now, this is a tomb from the time of Jesus. And what they would do is, like Jesus, you'd be buried in your grave clothes and laid on a shelf, which would be like in where that hole at the back is. I mean, these things are a couple of thousand years old, so they're looking a bit crummy now. And then when all the flesh had rotted away and you were bones, they would gather you up and put you in a box with your name on it. Or there may be several people in a box. There'd be several people's names on it. Or Jesus obviously never made it to that stage because he was up and around and walking. Next one. To my final picture. This is a very um, fancy, they're called ossuaries. It's a bone box. This is a very, very fancy one. And this was found in a tomb, an intact tomb with loads of other family members. And the name on the end of the box is Caiaphas. Who was Caiaphas? He was the high priest. He was the high priest when? At Jesus' trial. And so this is, this is Caiaphas. In this tomb, they found his ossuary. They found the one of his son. They found his granddaughter. Some of them, there was no longer readable writing on them. This is the family tomb of Caiaphas' family. There weren't any bones left in the box. These tombs got robbed. The bones got thrown out. People were after all the goodies. But the actual man who oversaw the trial of Jesus ended up in that box. This is how real the Bible is. If if Caiaphas is real, if Tiberius and Pontius Pilate are real, you're not suddenly going to invent this person called Jesus in the middle of it. I have this amazing thing here. This is a Bible. And in it, this is a, um, an archaeological study Bible. So every now and then you get all these little um, things, little extra articles that tell you about all the interesting stuff in the Bible. So there was a whole page in here about, which you can come and see later, about evidence for Jesus in writings of the time that were not written in the Bible, things the Romans wrote that had Jesus in them. So there's, a whole, there's all this extra information that you get in this Bible. It's amazing. I recommend it. Thank you so much, Anne, for drawing our attention to the reality that Jesus really became human and, and was in the dust with us and how important that is. And so, and so we've looked then at the historical setting, that he was, what he was born into, and now I'd like to end with my last point, the reason why God took on a human body. So how could God become human? 
God is infinite in just about every way, infinite power, infinite knowledge, and he's in all space, in all, everywhere, and yet we are limited and finite in just about every way. How could he become human? Um, so Jesus didn't lose his God qualities. He actually, in an amazing way, had both of them. And I'm going to take some time, not today, but we're going to talk about what this actually was like. But in some ways, this transcends how we can understand it. We just have to have to to believe that he was genuinely human at the same time as being divine. But the question is, why did he have to become a human? And my best uh, my best kind of picture of this, which I'm going to start with and we're going to end with, is. If a house is on fire and there's somebody trapped inside and they're screaming for help and everything is flames, what does the, what does the firefighter have to do? They have to go in, don't they? They have to go in. And this is what Jesus had to do. In order to save us, he had to come into the fire. He had to come into the filth. He had to come into our situation and get his hands dirty. And that, I think, part of why is you get the, all the messiness in his bloodline because he was coming into our own messiness. Um, you could say, well, can't God do anything? Couldn't he just decree that we, we will be saved? Well, we don't know the answer to that. We don't know how things work, but it must have been necessary because God wouldn't have done that with his own son if that wasn't something that was absolutely necessary. Now, I want to say that Jesus accomplished two things when he came to earth, a negative and a positive. The negative was he dealt with our sin. And the positive is that he gave us, he set us free to new life and to victory. And so I'm going to talk about those two things. The first of all is that um, he took the price of our sin. And in Isaiah, we read last week that those wonderful verses about uh, he was wounded for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities, that he took our place. The, the theological term is substitutionary atonement. He went in our place so we wouldn't have to go in his place. And so part of what he did was he substituted for us. And sometimes it's put like this. Um, if you, supposing I have a parking fine and I go to court and, and I'm fined and I'm guilty and somebody says, oh no, it's $200, but I'm going to pay the money for you. And we look at it like that. And um, well, that's kind of okay as an illustration of somebody paying for someone else. But what if I was going to go to prison for something I'd done wrong? You don't normally allow someone else to go to prison instead. That's not how justice works. But we, like I say, we don't totally understand this, but in God's plan and the way that God, that justice works, if Jesus is closely enough identified with us, if he's closely enough connected with us, then it's okay and he can actually take on our, our punishment and take on what belongs to us. As I said, this is um, something which we can't plumb the depths of, but we are taught that this is true in the Bible. However, there's more to it than that. And it's not just um, 
what happened at that point in time and that he took this punishment. It's something more than that. And my best illustration, and this is the last picture for today, um, this is a picture of, um, of climbers. Now, those climbers, I don't know if you can see that, but the one at the back has got a rope around them and it's linked to the one in the middle, which is linked to the one in the front. What's the purpose of that rope? Why have a rope? Yeah, life-saving, because if one of you falls over, hopefully the other ones won't be pulled over and they would be, and they'll be okay. So it's a a safety thing, because your your fate is joined together. And uh, one of them can fall and the others will keep them. So their fate is joined together. So I'm going to get Anne to come up now. And um, we're going to do a little bit of a demonstration of what Jesus does for us. You don't have to move that. Um, so, Am I Jesus or are you Jesus? You're Jesus. <laughs> okay, uh, it's the rest of you, Andrew. So what it's, it's like is he joins himself to us. He puts a rope around us. And so now our destinies are linked together. And because he... Goes to the grave and he's raised from the dead. He's raised. I'm raised as well. Because he is going to glory, I'm going to glory as well. Because he has victory over darkness, I have victory. And this is the best way of understanding salvation. And it's taught in the New Testament all the time. Like it says, you're united with Christ. You died with him. You were raised with him. You're exalted with him. You're in heaven. And that with Christ. In fact, the most common expression for a Christian in the New Testament, in Paul's writings, is to be in Christ. You're in Christ. Uh, and that's, and that, I want you to get that as the core message today, that Jesus came into this world so we could be joined with him. This is what I <laughs> Yes, so we're, we're stuck now. Okay, all right. So, so that is, that is uh, what I want to leave you with today. I want you to leave you with this, this idea. And um, Jesus defeated death, and so do we. Jesus is beloved by the Father, and so are we. Jesus has been through God's judgment and come out the other side, and so are we. He's pure and spotless. There is no blemish in him, and so are we, because we are joined to him. It's not that God just looks at him and doesn't look at us because we're dirty and he's kind of clean. No, we're actually joined together. So when he looks at us, he sees us together and Jesus has, has done for both of us what's necessary to make us pure and spotless. And, and so that's the negative. The positive is that we now have a life with freedom because he has won freedom. And, uh, so uh, Jesus has, has not only paid for sin, but we now have this relationship with him of the positive, the blessings. Uh, Romans 8.2 says, um, the spirit of life in Christ has set us free from the forces of sin and death. And the New Testament says, Jesus has been raised above all power and authority, all angels, all demons. Jesus is higher and you are seated with him in heavenly places. You're with him. There is no demon who can stand against you 
because you are in Jesus and you are tied to him. No accusation can be made against you because who you are in Jesus Christ. So I'm just going to uh, look at Luke chapter 2. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. Pay attention. I proclaim to you the good news that brings great joy to all people. For to you is born this day a saviour who is Christ the Lord in the city of David. So this is what I'm going to leave you with. Um, Jesus came to be human so that we could be joined to him and we could be with him forever. And if you, this morning, you are, don't know what it's like, you don't have that, that connection with him, you can ask him. And he says, ask of me and I will come and I will, and I will put my arms around you. I will take you. We don't have the strength to do it ourselves, but he will take us and he will do it with us. There was an error in, um, in uh, the, the 20th century in the southern U.S., um, which was called the Lordship Gospel. And the idea was that you had two stages to salvation. You accepted Jesus as Savior, and then you accepted him as Lord. And so you'd have a big crusade. Lots of people would sign decision cards, or I'm, I'm saved. But their lives weren't changed because they'd only done part one of salvation. And part two is you have to accept Jesus as Lord. And it's, it, like, it's not taught in the Bible, but it became popular as an idea to explain why so many apparent Christians weren't living Christian lives. Um, and it, it's totally false because to have Jesus as your Lord is to be joined to him. Everything comes together in one package. There's no two stages. He is the one who frees you from this darkness, this pain, and brings you into his joy. So I want us to just to end with thanks to Jesus. Are you feeling thankful for what he's done, that he would come into this messiness, into this darkness, into this, this dirt for us. And he did that so that he could be joined to us forever. Wow. He's, like, we have this freedom. He's tied to us now for eternity. He's tied to us, and he's chosen to do that. Like, it just gives me goosebumps just to think of, of the love that he has for me. and I don't deserve it, and he has it for you if you're trusting in him. Let's just thank him, shall we? Let's praise him. Oh, Jesus, we want to thank you now. We want to say thank you that you took on the name Emmanuel, God with us, because you wanted to love us and come into our dirt, into our fire, into our messiness. Join yourself to us and then take us to freedom at such a cost to yourself. Jesus, we're overwhelmed that you would do this for us, that you would... We, we don't have any value, Lord, that would make us worth this. But thank you. We lift your name up. We praise you and we will praise you forevermore, for eternity. Amen.